So Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and uh, beginning at verse 1. Ecclesiastes 12, we're going to look from verse 1 to verse 8. And uh, let's stand together as we come to the Bible. You'll find it on page 559, Ecclesiastes 12. And let's pray. Fathers, we come now to your word. We pray that by your spirit, you would help us not only to be informed, but for there to be true transformation, change lives. Thank you, Father, that uh, you say that this is a living word. And so as we come now to a part of the Old Testament in this Christmas season, Father, we pray it would live for us by your Spirit. The seed would be sown on soft hearts. And we pray these things uh, for Jesus' glory. Amen. So, friends, beginning at verse 1 of chapter 12 of Ecclesiastes. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain in the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few and those who look through the windows are dimmed and the doors on the street are shut. When the sound of the grinding is low, one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along and desire fails. Because man is going to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets before the silver cord is snapped or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the cistern and the dust returns to the earth as it was and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. Do please sit down. Well, again, that's, that's uh, not exactly your typical Christmas reading, I don't think. Um, uh, so uh, we'll get into it and see why it's relevant to Christmas 2011 in a moment. I just want to remind us again, as we've heard already from Jeremy in the announcements, that uh, Christmas is a great opportunity to invite friends to church, whether tonight for the children's festival. That's going to be a great time. If you've got children, I know you're going to be here anyway, so that's tonight. And then next Sunday, uh, December the 11th, in the evening, the carol service, there will be fantastic music. You've got a sense of the musical uh, qualities of College Church already this morning. There'll be fantastic music, the Messiah, not the whole thing, just an excerpt. Um, the Messiah, and then I'll be giving a brief talk, a brief gospel talk, and the title I've chosen is Tinker, Tailor, Soldier, Messiah, so to outline the identity of Jesus at Christmas. Well, let's have a look now at this passage this morning, and as I outline for us now uh, the relevance of this to uh, this season and any season, I'm reminded 
of uh, a saying uh, which goes like this. When I think of the next generation, I fear for the future of the world. Uh, That's sometimes what people can think about the next generation, isn't it? I mean, actually, there's some jokes about this in the north of England, where my wife is from, uh, Yorkshire. Uh, And the jokes like up there begin like this. When I were a lad, and then they explain how life was much harder. I'm just explaining the relevance now of this passage, right? So this is to try and help you understand why you should listen for the next 30 minutes. Okay? I don't want to teach something that is pointless. I only want to say what from this pulpit that I believe is worth 30 minutes of your precious time. And I know that not every time you go to a church that actually happens. And I want to explain to you why this is important. Okay, so relevance. Not making it relevant, explaining why it is relevant, right? So up in uh, the phrase is, when I look at the next generation, I fear for the future of the world. And uh, up in uh, north of England, where my wife is from, they have a series of sort of jokes about this issue, which I'm now outlining to help you see why it's relevant. And uh, those uh, jokes often begin with the phrase, when I were a lad, and they actually have a different accent up there. My wife has a different accent from me. Now you know. (laughs) Oh, you are there today. Good. Uh, When I were a lad, and it's a Yorkshire accent, and it's when I were a lad, you see. Uh, That was a different accent. (laughs) Um, I know you don't think you have an accent here, but you do, you see. I don't have an accent. You do. Um, when I were a lad, and they, was, they had a lot of jokey sayings about how things are easy now for young people. So one of those sayings is, when I were a lad, we used to get up before we went to bed, you see. Uh, and when I were a lad, it were tough down the mines. There used to be a lot of coal mines up in the north of England. Still some, not so many. Uh, or another jokey saying is uh, uh, about a clip around the ear hole, which is when, you know, in the old days, a little kind of um, disciplined slap around the, around the ear, you see, a clip around the ear hole. And one of the sayings is, when I were a lad, my mum used to give me a clip around the ear hole as a special thank you treat, you see, etc. You see, when I were a lad, things were easy. You, things were, you young'uns think you have it easy. When I were a lad, things were tough. I, I remember going to um, a series of meetings with some fairly senior denominational church leaders a little while ago about the up-and-coming generation, and they were kind of scratching their head about this up-and-coming generation of how difficult It was for them to understand what they were really about, which was amusing to me because at the time I was part of the demographic of the up-and-coming generation. And they were saying things like, the young people today are not really interested in institutions, as if they ever were, I think. But uh, nothing corporate really turns them on, though Apple computers seem to manage it. Um, uh, they're bloggers, they were huffing when blogging was cutting edge, and denominations feel like CBS, you see. Or in other words, when I look at the next generation, I fear for the future of the world, which was said by 
Aristotle. Fourth century BC, over 2,000 years ago. People always think the next generation is weird or different. Plus ça change, plus c'est la même chose. That's not Yorkshire, it's French. <laughs> or as Ecclesiastes has said, there's nothing new under the sun. You see, the next generation always thinks, they always think the next generation is odd, different, impious. And so it makes you sit up straight and listen, I hope, when you consider that Ecclesiastes says, remember your creator in the days of your youth. He's actually suggesting that youth is the right time to be seeking God. See, what's going on here is that Ecclesiastes is concerned to get us past the idea that God is your insurance policy. You know, that God is for when you have gray hair or a deathbed conversion, maybe, or he's a sunset hobby. When you've had all the fun you want to have, then you can get God. He's saying, God's not like that. This is not ageist. What he's trying to get us to realize is that, of course, old people should seek God too. He's, He's not for one generation or against another. What he's trying to get us to realize is that God is like one of those things that you want to make sure you get to see while you still have the energy to do so. In other words, you know, say you want to go abseiling. You don't think, I'm going to wait to do that until I'm 90. You think, I'm going to do that right now. Or say, say you, you're really into parkour, free running in the urban jungle. You don't think, oh yeah, I'll, I'll save that till when I'm, you know, 105. That's a good time for that. I'm going to do that now. I'm going to make sure I get that done with all my energy now. You're only young once, they say, and Ecclesiastes says, therefore, make sure you invest every particle of energy you have in God. God is the kind of person, the kind of activity you like, he's saying, who is worth every last ounce you have of youthful energy whatever age you are. So actually, this is not really about age. It's really about God. Who God is. What kind of God God is. God is not for shuffle boards or really long committee meetings. Not that God cannot turn up at really long committee meetings. I've seen him do it once or twice. It's amazing. But that God is the kind of person that is worth getting now, not an insurance policy. God is the extreme sport of the sporting world, if you like. He's the high-octane experience of life, if you like. So what Ecclesiastes is saying is, 
with all the energy you can muster while you can get God now. That's what he's saying. Now, he's going to give two reasons why and one explanation how that's interwoven through this passage. Okay? So, the two reasons why, first reason why, and I'm going to refer to something that the English call Zimmer frames, uh, but I think that uh, Americans call walkers. You know the things you push along when you can't really walk very well? They're called walkers. You know what I mean? Okay. And I'm going to refer to them in a very tongue-in-cheek and slightly risky way, because when you look down through this passage, you have no idea just how risky he's being. He's humorously trying to reveal old age for all its inconveniences. And I know I seem ridiculously young to some of you, but there's a difference between being over 40 on the wrong side than on the right side, and I find it. And I know that seems ridiculously young. I'm just trying to empathize, you see. Okay. So, it, as it were, in a title for this point about why get God now, I want to use this little phrase, walkers, those things you push along, walkers are not made to run with, he's saying. Look down at this passage. It's, it's, it's kind of shocking, some of it. Look at verse 2. Get God now, he's saying, verse 2, before, all this, the first sentence, then all the rest hangs on it, before these things take place. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. And what's that about? Well, it's probably about the failing eyesight of old age. Sun, the sun, the moon, the stars, any kind of light. That grows dark as our eyes fail. It's talking about how the gloom used to clean, uh, to clear up after the rain clouds passed. But it never does clear up now. It's all a bit of a visual fog. Look at verse 3. Get God now before when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few and those who look through the windows are dimmed. What's that about? Well, that's about failing physical strength. Uh, Some people think the keepers of the house That phrase means uh, our arms or our legs, and and there are different views about some of these metaphors here, but but my view, I, I think, in my view, the keepers of the house is more equivalent to bouncers at the door to clubs, if you like. That is, guards, strong men, they are, they are the people who protect the house, you see. Even strong men are bent, that is, they stoop and they cannot straighten up. In other words, what he's saying is, even if you're a machismo, Rambo, tough guy, even you will tremble and stoop in old age. He's saying you cannot work out so hard that palsy won't make you shake. The grinders are teeth. They cease to grind because there are so few left for one to grind against another. And when he says those who look through the windows are dimmed, 
he probably means bad eyesight again, looking through the window, as it were, of your eyesight. Look at verse 4. Get God now before the doors on the street are shut when the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low. What's that about? It's mainly about hearing. The doors to the street being closed is about the muffled sounds that come from the street when the doors are closed being like the kind of hearing that is always muffled in old age particularly if you went to a lot of Led Zeppelin concerts when you were young. He's been straightforward. I'm going to present it as straightforward as it is. The sound of grinding fades. You cannot hear. And then when he says, one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low, he's making a heavily ironic comment on how sometimes, not always, again, this is generic, general statements on sometimes how old people startle early in the morning at the slightest sound, but at the same time they cannot actually hear anything too well. Look at verse 5. Get God now, before he carries on, they are afraid also of what is high. And terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails. Now this is, this is a little eye-opening, this, this verse here. The, these images, you see, are, are mostly about appetite for life. So old men sometimes can be afraid of heights for fear of falling or going upstairs or venturing in the streets and sometimes prefer to stay in. And the almond tree blossoms, you see, with a predominantly white blossom, indicating the picture of the white hair of old age. Now, some people's hair turns white younger, and some people get really old, and it never turns white. It's a general picture. The grasshopper dragging himself along, that is, not when they jump athletically, but when they attempt to walk, their sagging, struggling gait. It's meant to imitate the painful shuffle of a, of a very old person or some old people. And then when he summarizes saying, desire fails, that has an analogy in the original to the caper berry which was meant to have been used to stir appetite or as an aphrodisiac. Look at verse 6. Get God now before the silver cord is snapped or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the cistern, which are all pictures about the precariousness of life. The silver cord, life is precious, but the thread of life can easily be snapped. The golden bowl, life is precious, but the vessel of life can be easily shattered. The pitcher at the fountain, life can be renewed regularly at a spring of water. You can go on vacation or take a day off for the equivalent but the means to renewal can easily be broken. 
the wheel, the cistern. Life can put up from the well of water new resources, but the wheel that pulls the bucket up from the well can be easily broken. In other words, get God now because walkers are not made to run with. You've got to use all your youthful energy. Don't wait. Now, he's saying, before this takes place. He's not, he's not saying if you're old, you don't have something to offer God. Of course you do. But he's saying God is the kind of person with every particle of energy you have, however old, however young. It's for him. It's, he's that kind of person. Run for God now. It's kind of eye-opening. He's, he's trying to be humorous with it, some of it, I think. Uh, we have similar sayings about old age today. You know you're getting old when you feel like the night before and you haven't been anywhere. You sit in a rocking chair and you can't get it going. Your knees buckle and your belt won't. Dialing long distance wears you out. Your fortune teller reads your face. The little gray-haired lady you help across the street is your wife. When you decide to procrastinate and you never get around to it. When old age is always 15 years older than you. When you burn the midnight oil after 9 p.m. When your back goes out more than you do. You sink your teeth into a stake and the teeth stay there. And you can brush your teeth and sing in the shower at the same time. When God becomes a distant memory, you can't remember his name, why he's important, or you have the energy to do anything much about him. Now, this is not, again, telling you that if you feel like you're old this morning, there's nothing you can do for God. Old people are the precious resource of many a church, here included. Old people do wonderful things for God all the time, but such old people tend, typically, not always, but tend, typically, to be the kind of people who found God while they still could with their youthful energy. Not certainly those who deliberately forget him when they have the chance. Get God now, he's saying. This is why. Walkers are not made to run with. You've got to use all your energy for this kind of God. Second reason why. God is pleasurable. God is pleasurable. Now, I don't just want to say pleasant or pleasing or even gives pleasure, though those are true, but that God himself is pleasurable. Uh, I think that's, that God is pleasurable is the point of all this passage. There's this sense of God being worth the energy of youth, which generally pervades the passage, and is specifically alluded to in verse 1, which says, Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. In other words, not only that really last old age time without God can stink, but God is pleasurable. 
He's worth it. He's not dry and kind of boring. He's the definition of joy, love, peace, pleasure. What could be more exciting than having a personal relationship with the creator of the universe? You can keep your drug high anytime. How much higher can you get? It's not that really getting into God means you lose control in a sort of sensual way. The spirit of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. Not losing control in a sensual way, but instead of that sort of wanton seeking of pleasure, we can be filled with the Spirit. And that's precisely what the Apostle Paul says. Do not be drunk on wine, but instead be filled with the Spirit. And that's not saying being filled with the Spirit is like being drunk on wine, far from it. But it is saying that the experience of being filled with the Spirit is far better, greater, more pleasurable, more exciting, more what I was really made for than anything else I can imagine. It seems to me that today we need to take this idea of the pleasure of God and and soak in it, for it is often the barrier to deep Christian devotion that we have a view of God as starchy, that He's reserved as an insurance policy. Not at all. He savors old age, and He's the excitement of any age. I mean, do we really think that Abraham had a boring time with God when he left his father's country and journeyed by faith to a country he did not know, taking God at his word? Is that boring? Do we really think that Moses had a boring time when he was the means of God rescuing his people from Egypt? Was, was Paul bored? Was Peter twiddling his thumbs thinking, oh, I'm not sure I can quite be bothered. What's the point, man? What's on TV tonight? God is more exciting than TV. God is more exciting than drugs or alcohol. God is more exciting than sex. Gosh, I'm getting radical this morning. In fact, sex, the gift of God within the marriage of a man and a woman for a lifelong commitment till death us do part. This sexual relationship is intended by God to speak of the far greater love that Christ has for the church and the bride of Christ has in submission to Him, His betrothal that will be consummated in the marriage of heaven. That's all in the book of Revelation. This sense that all these pleasures speak of the one source of all pleasure. Or as someone used to say to me, heaven is like sex, only better. You see, the great tactic of Satan is to take God's gift given for us to enjoy within its proper boundaries and intended to speak of Him as the source of all joy, to take that gift and use it selfishly in ignorance and rebellion against God. And then what happens? The thrill goes. We need more of it to get the same thrill. It dries up. 
It becomes like an ashtray in our mouth. The excitement wears down. But if we take all this and find our pleasure in God, there will be, as Jesus said, life. Life he came to offer and life abundantly. Life to the full. It's not going to be an easy life getting God now. That is, giving your all to Jesus. It's not going to be easy. There is a cost to living as a real Christian, that is a Christian of the heart and not just of the nominal word. Yes, there is a cost, but it's not deathly dull. It's life and life abundantly. So that's why I get God now. First, get him before you no longer have the energy to do so. Second, God is pleasurable. He is the most exciting person, event, experience you could imagine. You want to use every particle of energy you have to connect with him now. For all the days come when you say, I have no pleasure. So third, how? How do you get God now? By what uh, I'm going to call total divine recall. So look down with me at verses 1 all the way through to 8. Scan your eye down there. What I want you to see is a sort of golden thread, a theme, a series of transitions that hang on the first verse, which are all about that first key word, remember. Remember also your creator. And that sense of remembrance and the creation and the fall and how to get back to God in connection with him as your creator permeates every aspect of this passage and it all hinges and it all comes out of that one key word, remember. What does it mean to remember God? not remember as in simply don't forget or remember how to find Amos without looking it up in the index. It is remember as in what I want this morning to call total divine recall, which means it's focus on God, not self. Remember your creator. There's a focus on God there was a placement of him at the center of things. Remember your creator. Remember him, him, himself. Put him there in your mind and heart. It's, it's, it's all focused on God who really exists, who's really here by his spirit. Your creator. It's focused on God. It's, it's, it means it's personal. Remember your creator. There's an implied relationship here. He's not simply in this real sense of remembrance, the creator. He is your creator. It's very personal. Can you see that? It's focused on God. It's personal. That means it's restorative. So creation and fall runs throughout these eight verses. Remember your creator, 
See, creation is in the backdrop to it. And you go down the passage to verse 7, refers to the dust of the earth, which refers back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 19. What he's saying here is the way to get back to God is to remember your Creator, to re-enter the relationship of paradise for which you were intended and made. And the method of remembering is therefore restorative. It restores that relationship. Uh, Jacob Brodsky was a shy, retiring son of a bookstore owner. His father wanted him to go to college, but all he wanted to do was marry his sweetheart, Leela, a vivacious opposite to his own demeanor. Off to college, the boy went, but on his father's death, he returned to take over the store, marry his sweetheart, and live with her in an apartment above the bookstore. The life of books suited him but cramped her style, and some years later she was whisked off her feet by a Casanova who promised her adventure in Europe. Jacob gave her a key to the bookstore. She left him, saying one day she would return and she would need it. Fifteen years went by, and Jacob Brodsky buried his pain in reading books. Then a knock at the door. It was Leela. But he did not recognize her. So immersed had he become in his painful, bookish solitude. Stunned when he asked if she was looking for a book, she said yes, and proceeded to tell the story of a young, vivacious wife who went off with another man, was given a key to the store, and one day returned. He looked blankly at her. She said, surely you remember the story of Leela and Jacob. He said, Ah, yes, something by Tolstoy, I believe. And as he turned to search, she ran out the door, dropping the key behind her. This 1931 story by Tennessee Williams nicely illustrates what God is asking of us. We have run away. We still have the key to his heart, except, unlike Jacob, he cannot forget us. In fact, that key, that cross-shaped key is written in scars on his hands and a hole in his side. Remember God. Remember God by remembering to read the Bible and pray every day. Having a quiet time every day is not a legalistic rule. You would not accuse someone of trying to make you a legalist if they told you that you must eat every day. Remember God by remembering to serve others and the world around this Christmas time. Physical health is promoted through exercise 
so is spiritual health. Remember God by recalling God into the moment of temptation. As the temptation comes, say to yourself, I am made for God, not for this. Remember your Creator, who you were made for. He is more pleasurable than anything else. Remember God by remembering He's in charge even in the very worst of times. I often have to say this to myself on a daily basis as I watch my son suffer. God is in charge of this. I know it because I know Him. Even if this does not make sense right now, I know God. I know Him, who He is and what He has said, and I can trust Him even when I cannot trust this. Remember God by submitting His way to our future dreams. Remember God by fearing Him, not by being intimidated by people. Remember God by carrying our time in such a way that we can simply, as it were, enjoy a moment of time with God and a cup of coffee saying, Dear God, this is how I am feeling right now. Remember God by having our worldview, our whole mental framework, God-centered, not man-centered. Remember God by turning the mind's eye to His Word his promises, and His presence, even in the middle of a storm. Why wait any longer? Get God now. Let's pray together. Father, sometimes it feels like we have heard everything before, and we know exactly the answers, and yet it doesn't feel the same way as it did before. How do we find you? How do we connect with you? How do we experience you? Remember your Creator. Father, help us to do that this morning. To remember Mary and Joseph and the little baby the nativity scene, God in human flesh, the Creator. Help us to remember His love. He came to save us. by your Spirit to find 
pleasures at his right hand and joy forevermore. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.